Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Hi and welcome to Shifters Podcast. Today we have an esteemed guest and one of the best business thinkers in modern time, namely Alexander Osterwalder. Welcome, Alex. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Lucas. Thanks for being here. And um, you, um, what, what you're most famous for is probably the business model canvas, right? Which came out about how many? Tw- 10, 12 years probably ago? Probably 100 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we... we, we published it in a book called Business Model Generation in 2009 so that's when the book came out that our first book came out yeah but you've been working on it 10 years before that oh yeah. yeah so i did a whole doctoral dissertation on the topic of business models so the origin of the business model canvas is actually a doctoral dissertation believe it or not so that's how the whole thing started out so i've been working in innovation for 20 years now it's a crazy long time yeah So, uh, and uh, what I find found compelling about that is that you make it s- simple in a way. So, you're at least you make it accessible. Yeah. Is, is that is that the main value you see? You know, it's it's very very important to make <laughs> things simple and accessible if you want people to use them. So that's what I believe. You know, business tools, business thinking. You shouldn't have to do hard work to, to use it. So a lot of the business thinking is too complex or just not practical enough. So we spend an, an insane, literally an insane amount of time on making things accessible and simple. I believe business tools like the Business Small Canvas have a user interface and, and user experience, UX. And, and we really, really take care of that. Why? Very simple. So people start to use it. So they adopt it. When it's simple and accessible, the adoption goes up very easy exactly and uh, a lot of people use that for innovation yeah. and um and innovation uh, i don't know about you but uh, uh i i I'm, i'm a bit tired of that word innovation i get, <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. a little bit sick maybe yeah, some yeah, aller- yeah. allergic reactions when yeah. i hear that word but that's because of the connotations to that yeah. word right yeah. uh, it's yeah. it's become like a a goal in itself yeah uh, but isn't it isn't it actually about making resilient companies companies that uh, that can stand the test of time isn't that what it's all about and then innovation is just a tool to make that happen exactly excellent point i'd even say you know before we get to resilient and you know long-standing companies it's first and foremost about creating growth and growth doesn't just mean financial it could also be you know in terms of sustainability or growth of the people in your organization so you actually innovate with a goal in mind to create financial growth, to grow the company, to to create a better workplace, to have a better impact on society, on the environment. And ultimately, if you always reinvent yourself 
And you always try to keep this mentality of day one. Jeff Bezos talks about this a lot, mentality of day one. You will become more resilient because the biggest danger actually um, is, uh, you know, failure <laughs> comes from arrogance and success. So success <laughs> is the root of, of future failure because if you always think, you know, it could go wrong and I need to reinvent myself, you're going to stay ahead. We call that invincible company. And I think too many companies, when it goes well, they forget that that is getting that time frame is getting shorter and shor shorter. That's for startups and established companies alike. It's very hard, if not impossible, to create a long-term sustainable competitive advantage. That doesn't really exist anymore. It's actually the only thing you can do is constantly reinvent yourself. So your competitive advantage comes not from a product, not from technology, not even from a business model to a certain extent, but it comes from your ability, your culture of innovation. But isn't, isn't that kind of paradoxical since most CEOs haven't invented anything before? So I think there's a generational shift, right? So, um, you know, being CEO is a really, really hard job. And for a very long time, the job of the CEO was to manage the existing business model and do that really well, make it more efficient, you know, Six Sigma, all of the crazy tools you can imagine in that space. And that used to be enough. The problem that leadership in general and CEOs and board members are facing is that the competitive advantage of one business model is disappearing. Business models die like a yogurt in the fridge. <laughs> so you better kind of consume that yogurt and, and you know, get a new one. So what that means is that CEOs can't just manage an existing business model. They need to invent the future. Now, most CEOs still today, most leadership teams You know, they're kind of the old guard to a certain extent. That's not just age, right? That's mentality. So they haven't yet understood that besides being world-class execution people, they need to build a world-class innovation culture. And that's what's changing. And I don't think CEOs, if I may generalize, don't understand innovation enough. There are very few that understand innovation and do innovation. Because the doing is the big thing. You know, we now, we now know how to do it. Too few leadership um, teams go and do it committed in a very, very strong way. But isn't it symptomatic that when we talk about the big innovative companies like Google, like Facebook, like Amazon, like Tesla, yeah. you name it, they are m more or less you know, founder-led? So, you know, for a very long time, I had this impression as well. I was actually asking myself this question. Can companies that reinvent themselves, can that come from a manager type of CEO? And you can actually start to see some of those that are not, you know, founders, but are really just entrepreneurial CEOs. So I like to call them entrepreneurial CEOs. They might not have built, started and built the company, but they bring the same mindset. And one of my favorite um, entrepreneurial CEOs is Bracken Darrell, CEO of Logitech. He turned around the company and one of the things that he needed to do when he became CEO was to re-infuse an entrepreneurial spirit in the company because it used to be, you know, entrepreneurial. And then, you know, with uh, PC peripherals kind of going down the drain with the PC industry, it wasn't good enough anymore. So he spends 40 to 60% of his time on innovation. So it can happen that non-founders are great innovation leaders. Same thing, maybe one more example, a really big one, Ping An, where they actually have co-CEOs, where you have one CEO focused on execution, managing the existing, and a co-CEO 
who spends her time, Jessica Tan, only on growing the future. So it does exist. She wasn't an entrepreneur either before. So surprising enough, she came from McKinsey. And you, you need to find these entrepreneurial CEOs. They do exist in addition to the typical founders who've actually done it from scratch. So who needs to find that CEO? Is it the board? Is it the, yes. is it the shareholders? I think both. <laughs> so yeah. I think, you know... And, um, and will they like uh, bet their money on, on this? Because that's where it starts, right? Well... You can ask yourself this question. What is riskier to manage a business model that is dying with a dying industry or to start really innovating? So it's actually getting riskier to do nothing. To continue to manage the existing is, is, is not working anymore. So I'll give you a couple of industries that I know very well from Switzerland. They're dying. Banking. The business model has expired. They need to change. You're not going to be able to change without an entrepreneurial CEO. Pharmaceutical companies, they're changing. We actually have five of the top 15 pharma companies working with us. So it's the board's and the shareholders' responsibility to kickstart innovation. It's actually not the CEO. It's really the board. And that's the problem because CEOs hardly understand innovation. And often they do, but they don't take this step because it's scary. I know CEOs, they're doing it. But they're really scared because their board is not fully supporting them yet. And when you don't have full board support, you're in a dangerous position as CEO. So we should stop blaming the CEOs. We actually need to blame the board of directors and the shareholders. Or the CEO's ability to to, to work together with the board. Right. Yeah, but you know, when you have a board that doesn't understand innovation, it's hard. You yeah. can do whatever you want. Just like if you are a company that has activist investors who have very, very short-term interests, you you shouldn't even think of <laughs> innovation because it's it's impossible, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think the CEO needs to play that role and discuss with the board, but it's very hard. So what we need to do is one of my jobs is to educate board of directors to really understand what needs to be done? Like, I don't know if you know Richard Suskin. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, he said uh, that uh, it's hard to, it's hard to um, uh, tell a bunch of millionaires in a boardroom their business model is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I think it's changing because um, I think if you take the, the technology companies, they understand it because the business models expire all the time. What I think we're seeing now is the same phenomena that happened in the tech industry is happening really now physically to banking and pharma. We knew it for a long time and everybody's been talking about it, but it's only really happening now. So the board members are seeing that. They're seeing, take the car companies. They've seen how Tesla disrupted them and kicked their ass. There's no other way to put it. And Tesla is not a car company. Tesla is an energy company, is a data and software company, and now you know is 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 is, is putting solar panels on roofs. So what board members are starting to see is that if they're in banking or pharma or whatever other in manufacturing, they're actually not competing against the traditional competitors. So they really have to change. So it's 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 a wake up call. And you know the pandemic has actually accelerated this wake up call. Yeah. So let's look at the invincible company. So. Uh, the invincible company is, uh, of course, a theoretical um, uh, theoretical uh, concept, uh, in which is like it's 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 idealistic in a way, right? It's not like this is the way to so, to, to build a company. But then, but yeah. then, please explain yeah. what you mean by the yeah. invincible company. So, look, 
we used the the title Invincible Company because you need to have some sexy book title. And we actually tested this with uh, CEOs. We had things like the world's best business models. And the CEOs we talked to, they said, oh, it's boring. But when we said the Invincible Company, they were intrigued, right? Now, here's the thing. No company can be invincible. Actually, the moment you think you're invincible, you're almost signing your death <laughs> penalty, right? Because you're going to get disrupted. Those companies that actually stay humble and reinvent themselves, they stay ahead. So it's a paradox, right? You become invincible the moment you realize you're not, never invincible. So we, I think it's not that theoretical in the sense that we looked at a lot of companies and those that stay ahead, that are constantly able to stay ahead, they have three characteristics in common. First one is they reinvent themselves all the time while they're successful. So they don't wait for disruption. They're proactive, okay? Amazon, Google, Ping'an, the usual suspects. The second aspect is they don't compete on product, technology, or price. So while we often see technology innovation, they actually compete on superior business models. It's a very strong characteristic. Just thinking, oh, innovation is technology, that's not going to work. You need to think of superior business models. And the third one, this is the hardest, the, the companies that are really ahead, and we see that with the tech companies first, they actually transcend industry boundaries. We can't classify them anymore. You can't say, oh, um, um, take Apple. Yeah, they're a, a, a phone device company. They don't just make devices. They're an entertainment company. They make, you know, tons of different devices other than phones and, you know, working Services. on cars and health. and so, so you can't classify those companies in an industry anymore. So they're transcending industry boundaries. And again, you know, my fun suspects, because we have a lot of those industries in Switzerland, banks and pharmaceutical companies see themselves as banks and pharma companies. And that's the reason why they're going to die. <laughs> or some um, companies that transcend industry boundaries are going to disrupt them. So a great example is 23andMe. I don't know if you've heard of 23andMe. So we know it as a company that does consumer genetic testing. That's the front stage. But what do they do with all that data? They actually are a hardcore research company that takes that data and comes up with new drugs. That's a completely different business model than the traditional pharmaceutical companies. They own the data. So those things are going to happen more and more. You can't say they're in pharma. They're also in consumer health, right? So it's a very weird construct. So we need to understand those three things. So transcendence of uh, industry uh, is what you're talking about now. And what is like, because one one trap to go in there is that you are not fo focusing on the on the core, right? Uh, because you need to make the money you can yeah. make. So yeah. what, you, yeah. what you call exploit, right? Yeah, yeah. So, how do you stay true to your yeah. core, like yeah. exploit your, your current yeah. market? Yeah. And then how do you expand into new markets? And it's important to say and, right? So you need to manage the existing, what we call exploit, and you invent the future at the same time. And at no moment, at no point, can you abandon managing the existing. So if you're a bank or pharmaceutical company, manufacturing company, software company, you need to continue to do well what you built. And if you're a startup, that's actually your only job is to kind of get to that business model and do that well and scale it. But at the same time, and this is actually happening even for startups, at the same time, you need to start thinking of the future and not just thinking, actually experimenting. So, uh, you know, one of the examples I really like is uh, GoPro. Because they did not reinvent themselves. So they scaled 
really great company. My kids love the GoPro cameras. But they were not able to invent a new business model while they were scaling the traditional kind of camera model. So what happened? Everybody hyped them at the stock market, but their business model was crap. And they didn't build the business model of the future. They tried. So I've got to give them credit. They tried, but they weren't able to. So you need to do both at the same time. So do you need to do both at the same time or do you need to succeed at doing both at the same time? That's a very good point. And you, you know, I like, you know, you're almost lifting me onto this. This is a great thing here. So I don't know very many companies that don't do innovation, right? But the problem is they have a lot of innovation activities, but no results. And that's what, you know, um, my colleague Steve Blank and Rita McGrath, we like to call that innovation theater. There's a lot of show, a lot of acting, but very few real, you know, results. So doing is not enough. You need to measure what's the output of your exploration. And the output needs to be growth, financial growth, if that's what you're targeting, more impact for sustainability, if that's what you're targeting. So you're, you're, you're saying something really important here. We know how to track and measure results in the existing business, right? Dividends, you know, results. But we also need to measure the results of our innovation activities in terms of real output. So excellent point. And today we know how to do that. The measurements, the measurement system, the metrics, the KPIs are fundamentally different because they're different cultures and different professions. Yeah, and you actually, you borrow some of that philosophy from the VC. Uh, Absolutely. Su supporting startups, right? Yeah. And that's where I think what's interesting to see is the startup world and the exploration world, the innovation world of established companies is looking more and more alike. And if you have a, an established company, it doesn't have to be huge. Actually, it starts even, you know, after a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people. You need to have some activities that look like you're creating internal startups. And what's interesting is the, the, the best companies we're seeing, they're mixing what you call corporate venture capital, investing in startups, They mix that with investing in intrapreneurs, right? Internal startups. They put them together because they can learn from each other. So the way you invest today in the established company is like you invest in companies. You actually invest in a portfolio of projects and you kill a lot of them. In the venture world, we don't kill the project. We just don't give them any more money. In an established company, that means we need to, we stop funding projects that should be killed. And you know, in a lot of companies, we see these zombie projects. We see projects that continue to get funding, but they should have been killed a long time ago. In the startup world, you don't see that. It's a little bit now because there's too much money around. Yeah. But what we need to get really good at, like in the VC world, we need to kill projects that don't produce results, first results. Not an established business, not necessarily money right away. But evidence that this is a good idea. Okay, so let me challenge this a little bit mm -hmm, uh, in mm -hmm. terms of, so or or, or this theory. It it sounds very good. It's a good theory. It's it's logical and it makes yeah. sense. Like yeah. in 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 in, um, yeah. uh, in in terms of activities and everything. But how do you deal with SMEs or so small and medium sized enterprises? Yeah. Do they because you you mentioned in your book that you need to have you need to fund two hundred and fifty projects uh, with a hundred thousand dollars and then then you will get one winner yeah. right. And you, if you're a small company, it's, how, where do you it's get the, the same thing, but at a smaller scale? And I'll give you the example of a Swiss company called Lora Star. So what do they do? Traditionally, 
they used to build, and they still do actually, it's still the core business, they build uh, steam irons, okay? And they the really high-end irons, steam irons, they, they ship this around the world. That's their core business. But they also need to reinvent themselves because there's a lot of low-cost manufacturers that come up with really high-end grade, you know, steam irons. So they didn't invest in 200 projects. They're too small. But what they did is a brainstorming to come up with 14 ideas. And ideas don't matter, right? Ideas are free. They're cheap. But afterwards, they had three parallel projects that explored what business model could work to use actually their core competence, STEAM. And what they came up with then was one that, that they pushed to market, that they scaled. So this, the, the only thing that's different is the numbers. So you won't invest in 200, but you'll invest in three. But the key to take away here is, it's not the number. The key to take away is in innovation, you can't pick the winner. And if you're smaller, you're going to invest in less projects, but you also don't need a multi-billion dollar success. If you're Nestle, you need a multi-billion dollar success. So you have to invest in more projects. It's actually the same thing as in, in venture capital. But is, is it as linear and mathematical as that? So if you invest in three, you will get, you will get one project that will, will, so, because, because, so yeah. if, look, the challenge is the smaller the numbers are, the, the higher the risk. Why? Because your portfolio gets smaller. It actually is portfolio theory. So at the level of three, you can't guarantee that you're going to get a big winner. But what you can start to guarantee is when you invest in three, that one of them probably comes up with a better idea than the two others. If you invest in one, you have one team that's going to try to pivot itself to success. And that's kind of the dirty secret of the whole lean startup movement. You can't, you cannot pivot yourself to success. You need to pivot all the time. But sometimes, actually experienced entrepreneurs say, there's nothing there. They pay back investors and they go to the next project. So we need to do the same in innovation. And that doesn't matter if it's at the scale of 10 or three projects or a scale of 200 per year. So the thing, the only thing you need to keep in mind is the bigger the success you want, the larger the portfolio. That's why, you know, early stage venture capitalists will invest in 100 projects and they will screen 1,500 projects. But if you, you're, you're happy with a small success, oh, I just need a, a, a million of recurring revenue. That's small. That's relatively feasible. You don't need 200 projects to get to that. Sometimes it can even be two or three. So the smaller the success that you expect, the smaller the portfolio. So it's portfolio. So, so let's say you have a ton, $10 million revenue company. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how much should they invest in, in so I would say exploration? If yeah. If uh, I like to say that you need to have at least 1% of your, of your staff focused 100% on innovation. So, you know, that if, if you get to a number where that's not going to be a full person anymore. So if you have a hundred people, you need one person, hundred percent dedicated to the future, to innovation. So I would look at it that way in terms of staff, if you want. Now, I do believe you can have a rule of thumb. So, I like to say, and my team kind of hates it because we don't have the empirical proof <laughs> for that. But if you invest a million um, into uh, the the innovation funnel, I would expect ten million back. Okay, so I, I like this ten x factor. You invest a million, 
And not in one project, right? Because that's wrong. Because you invest in one million in one project is actually very likely to fail. You're going to increase the the the. Jag vet inte hur många selskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få en professionell investerare, till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och selskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi säger en ting de proffe investerarna er på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra selskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Failure rate. But if you invest 1 million in 10 projects I would expect that after you go through the funnel, you get one winner and probably, you know, nine losers, but one winner that's going to return um, 10 million in revenue. Okay, so one important thing that you, I don't know if it lacks it in a way, but uh, your book is, is, is the importance of the right people. So you yeah. you, you touch upon it, but yeah, but, but, yeah. but um, let's say, because here you have, you have, employees yeah 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 versus entrepreneurs right yeah they own their own business yeah. they are maximum incentivized yeah. but employees are not in the same way right no, no. so uh why would if, if if you have great employees yeah. that that would actually make make this million billion dollar business why wouldn't they start their own company so because they might not have the same profile so i think um, you're absolutely right with the people. And, you know, it's not that we didn't know that. It's just, <laughs> no, like, we didn't want to write a thousand page book. So what we put first is some of the basic stuff that people need to understand in companies. And then the, the people aspect is the next best thing to solve. But I don't think it's enough just to hire the people, but not having the structure in place. And actually, that's what we see. So I think every company, let's say maybe from a hundred person on hundred people onwards, the the probability that in that team of at least 100 people, when it's 10,000, like it's a no-brainer, it's the num- laws of numbers, you will have enough good ideas and you will have enough entrepreneurial people, okay? So the problem are is never the people in the sense that they're there. But it might be, you know, one out of 100 or one out of 1,000. But here's the thing. Those people in companies today who have an entrepreneurial drive, but maybe not the same risk profile as doing it on their own because they want to be employees, they are lacking the structures today to be an intrapreneur. So what companies lack today is not the people, is not the ideas. They're there. They're important. But what they lack is the funnel to allow these people to thrive. It's just like you can't be an entrepreneur in a country that has zero, you know, entrepreneurial ecosystem and zero financing and zero regulation that promotes entrepreneurs. That is basically what we're seeing in companies today. Companies today, they punish experimentation. They punish innovation. Your career path, you know, doesn't allow for innovation. So guess what? The best innovators in companies today, what do they do? They, because they're good, they're probably also going to be reasonably good at managing. So they're going to become managers. But the moment you open the floodgates, the moment you allow people to explore and you put everything in place so they can do it, 
you actually don't need that many more people from the outside. I'm not saying you shouldn't because we need to acquire innovation talent. But the problem today is structure, not people. That doesn't mean people are key, but the people are there today. But they're punished from innovating. At least we can agree upon that, that the structures are not good enough. So it's hard to say if it's people or or not, right? Be- so, because it's like, yeah, are, are you, don't you agree? You, but if you look at, at companies today, those that put in place the structures, and a great example that I can use publicly is Bosch. So Bosch put in place an accelerator, and every company has accelerators, but that one is actually empowered with sufficient money and sufficient power they run. They ran. I think over the last uh, three years, two hundred fourteen projects. Anybody can kind of start, right? So the structure is there, and I've seen so much evidence. It's not a scientific research, but any time a company creates the structures, they never have a people problem. They never have a people because what happens is the best innovators. The only thing you need to do, you don't even need to reward them. You just need to stop putting blockers in their way. When you take away the blockers, innovators will innovate. And you know, I actually didn't believe that first. I had a big conversation with Scott Anthony, big business thinker. And he said, Alex, we just need to start taking away the blockers. So yes, incentives like financial and so on are important, but they're not the most important because innovators don't care as much about money as they do about pursuing their passion. So do you believe the power of the structure is actually more important than uh, the, 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 the people? The people. So it's both, okay? It's, it's definitely not one more than the other. But the, the question is starting point. So again, if you, and, and there's actually good evidence for that, you know, in terms of acquisitions. When an established company acquires a startup with great entrepreneurs, what happens usually after one year or two years when their kind of lock-in agreement has has evaporated? They leave. They, so they have great people. So it's almost like my friend Bill Fisher has a quote. I'll misquote him, but he says, companies are great at acquiring talent and then turning them into mediocre performers. So what comes first is structure and then people can express their innovation capabilities. So it's not that one is more important than the other, but sequentially, structure comes first. Because there is no lack of people. So I'm not mm. saying one is more important than the other, but I'm saying one one should come first. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm I'm trying to 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 to, to connect this with what Erin uh, Meyer is talking yeah. about with Netflix, and, and she's right. But you yeah. know, Netflix is easy because mm-hmm. they have that 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 ecosystem. So that's actually Netflix is an excellent point, and she wrote an amazing book. It's one of my favorite. And you know, at my company, we're building that Netflix culture. So why can people at Netflix or Amazon be so creative? It's not because they're better more, you know, smarter or more creative. It's because Netflix and Amazon have an innovation culture and culture comes from structure. So if they didn't have that structure, you know what? Those people would perform just as badly as innovators that maybe as at IBM. Yeah. So it's structure first. And I'd say Netflix and Amazon are a case in point. They don't have more talented people. I'll guarantee you that. 
If you go into pharma, into banking, some of the smartest people in the world. But isn't this exactly her point? Is that they have the most talented people? They are they're actually seeking the rock stars, like the the, the engineer, software engineer, who performs thirty times better okay, than. Okay, uh, let me give you an example to to you know I don't need to convince you, but an example <laughs> just to to frame your thinking. Take Microsoft. Okay, Microsoft was a world class innovation company under um, Bill Gates. And then Balmer took over, and he was a world-class executioner. He actually grew the company to an amazing size, but he missed out on every single innovation that you could miss out on, okay? And then the company was, you know, really going down the drain, you could say. And then what happened? Satya Nadella took over and changed the structure fundamentally. What happened to the company? grew phenomenally again. Why? Same people. Same people. So that's a case in point that, yes, you need those rock star innovators, but even with rock star innovators, if you put barriers into their way, if you punish them, what is going to happen? They're not going to thrive. So yes, people. And, you know, I don't want to argue against that because I do think the biggest problem in companies is it's not just about letting that talent thrive. It's also about accepting innovation as a profession, which means entrepreneurs get better after three times of failure. (laughs) So the first time, most entrepreneurs get it wrong. It's a myth that you have this rock star 20-year-old on the cover of a magazine. That's an exception. That's not the reality. Statistics show people over 40 are the most successful entrepreneurs. So there is actually um, experience that matters. So in addition to creating the structures, we also need to continuously invest into their talent development, which is different from management. Business schools, MBAs, they train managers, and there's nothing wrong with that. I I hate MBA bashing because we need good managers. But innovation and entrepreneurship is not about managing. It's about exploration. So we need to train them as well. And that's an education. It actually looks a little bit more like the medical education than the, than the business education. Yes, learning by doing. More. Well, look at it this way. It's not just learning by doing. Imagine you go to the hospital and you're going through heart surgery. And your surgeon shows up and says, well, I never read a medical book about anatomy and physiology, but you know, I I did learning by doing. I did a lot of operations. <laughs> There's a couple of dead people along yeah. the way. So here's the thing. Innovation and entrepreneurship is a combination of understanding the theory. So I believe in business, anatomy, and physiology. That's business models, value propositions. You can learn that. But then you don't just learn it by books. You don't become a doctor by reading books, right? You also need to do it. So it's both. And that's why medical education is so cool because – you learn a shit ton first, and then you do internship. In entrepreneurship, we're learning by doing. It's as if, and it, it, entrepreneurship education is only is starting to, to work in innovation as well. It's almost as we say, okay, go and operate, and it doesn't matter if we'll have a couple of dead people over there. That's what we're doing in entrepreneurship today. We're actually doing learning by doing without really learning the theory the anatomy and physiology of entrepreneurship, because that's different from the anatomy of kind of managing a business. Yeah, and you need to know you need to know the theory before you break the rules, right? Yes, and you know what? I, I actually hate that expression, breaking the rules. 
Let's change the rules. Okay? Because <laughs> yeah. if, if somebody says in a company, I need to break the rules to innovate, well, then the rules are broken, right? You actually need to change the rules so innovators can thrive. So when people say, oh, I, you know, I'm a rebel, I'm a pirate, say, stop saying that. Because historically, we kill rebels and pi- pirates. So what you really want is to turn the innovators into you know the stars, just like the best salespeople are the stars of making money, innovators need to be the stars of creating future revenue. They yeah. shouldn't be seen as rebels but, but or isn't pirates. that hard for people to understand because they don't see the money coming in? It's, it's so long-term. It's like the climate change problems, right? It- so, so um, of course, it's hard to see. But what you know, a lot of the leadership, the CEOs I'm working with, the boards I'm working with, what they are starting to see is two things. One is their industries are getting disrupted. So they're clueless and they need to do something. They don't know what yet. And the second thing is they're seeing companies that have done it, not the Amazons, because nobody can identify with Amazon because Amazon from the start, like Netflix, was innovative. What we need to have is role models of companies that went from classic, boring business model and reinvented themselves. And my favorite example there is Ping An. They used to be a finance and insurance conglomerate. And then the founder, incidentally a founder, okay, <laughs> said, we need to become a technology company. And they transformed. So that's a much better role model than Amazon because Amazon and Netflix from the start were innovative. Yeah. But, but that you didn't have that at Ping An. But is it possible to secure success as long as you, you follow like the portfolio management so theory? What you need, yes, I do believe that's what we're seeing today. We have a lot of examples. But here's the thing. When you're starting out, you need to have short-term wins. And they might not come from the next business model. And I'll give you a Swiss example. The Insure Balois. It's about 7,000 people, so not a huge company. What the CEO did, Gert de Winter, when he took over in 2016, he made it explicit to the stock market, to the investors, how much they're going to invest. He said 10 to 30% of capital coming in. So that was between 50 and 150 million per year. And the second thing is, he said, in the next decade, we're going to create an additional billion in valuation. So he was very explicit with the goals. And then they started investing in a portfolio. And they looked at having quick wins. And they're always keeping the trans- the portfolio transparent to their investors. So what is, what is a quick win? What's, what's an a, example quick win of, uh, a quick win would be example. a new product. Same business, small, yeah. new product. But, you know, maybe a new segment with a new value proposition. That's, for me, a relative quick win. An extremely quick win is you equip the sales force maybe with uh, digital applications. But here's the thing. Even that requires testing and experimentation because it's very easy to create an app that nobody uses. (laughs) And a lot of IT departments know that. So even there, we're talking about rapid iteration. So you can get quick wins. And the quick wins actually often can generate more money, but for the short term. So you can generate, you know, hundreds of millions in revenue in a quick win, but the quick win won't keep you alive for the next 10 to 50 years. So you need to start the quick wins first and create the big wins in the three to five years that follow. So I think quick wins need to come after five years. Again, Ping An, just to show, they went in less than a decade 
from the top 500 companies in the world to the top 20. Why? Because they substantially invested in innovation. And after a decade, you'll have really big wins. But it does require that the management has some patience, that the investors have some patience, else it's not going to happen. It's like Amazon, they always said, we're investing everything into growth. So, you know, quarterly results, we don't care. Yeah. So what you're saying here, communication is super important. Communication is key. If you don't do that, you actually need to, if you're a publicly listed company, you need to make it explicit to the stock market. If you, you know, owned by investors, uh, you know, um, VCs or family hold held, you need to make explicit what do you expect to get from innovation? What are you doing? And every year show the results. We can measure the results in innovation just like we can measure the results in exploit. So we talked a little bit about it, but uh, let's start, talk a little bit more about culture. And uh, the, um, you have this culture map. Yeah. And um, we, you, you said that structure comes before culture. So culture is the result of behaviors. And what do behaviors come from? From structure. Meaning, you know, for example, formal incentive systems or informal behaviors of leaders inside a company, right? So it's formal and informal enablers and blockers. That structure, your processes and how you measure things is going to lead to behavior, is going to lead to a certain culture. Yeah, so you said formal and informal. Yeah. So how do you deal with the informal? So, you know, what the best way to do this is, and it's actually the same for startups and for established companies, So we created this simple tool called the culture map. There's actually only three boxes, right? Yeah. The outcome of your culture, the behaviors that lead to that outcome, how do we behave, and then the enablers and blockers. So what you want to do is sit down with your team, and if it's a big company with your management team, and you start to map out what are the typical behaviors in our company? How do we behave? And then people will say, uh, when we talk about innovation, We always stop the conversation and move to, we need to get to the relevant points. Um, when people experiment and fail, we punish them. Those are all behaviors. So you start to look at that. And then once you have a good picture of how people are behaving, that's the visible part of culture, then you ask, why are they behaving like that? <laughs> okay, Why are people not experimenting? Well, let's look at the enablers and blockers. So maybe there's an informal thing there that in their annual review of the team members, there is no space for experimentation. All of their key performance indicators in their annual review are all geared towards execution. So that's formal, right? But then an inf informal thing would be at every meeting when somebody wants to bring up new ideas, they're killed and not even put somewhere on a parking lot and say, yeah, we should actually carve out time for that. So it's not enough to look at what you're doing. <laughs> you need to ask yourself, why are we doing that? And back to, you know, um, the, the Netflix culture, they put in place really strong enablers and they took away the blockers that are blocking people from creative behavior. And I don't think we do that enough. So every company has a culture. Very few companies deliberately design and manage their culture. And I think that's where we're moving today. Netflix, great example. HubSpot, great example. Amazon, great example. Jeff Bezos has actually been writing about the Amazon culture for decades. So those companies are world-class at innovation because they design 
and manage culture, incidentally, and innovation culture. They do it actively. Most yeah. companies don't. So you start by looking at what outcomes do you want this, this, yeah. this culture to have, right? And, yeah. and then you go back to, okay, these behaviors yeah. will create these outcomes. Yeah. And then you go one, one step back either and, and you ask further them. and then you ask what exactly. are the enablers and what are the um, inhibitors or the blockers. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, funny enough, for execution, for managing, like quality control, we actually do that, right? We ask, okay, we want great quality products or no downtime for our web servers, whatever. Okay, what are the behaviors we have today that would lead to that and, and how would you do that? We don't do that yet for innovation outcomes, for innovation results. It's actually very simple. It's You need to visualize it and manage it. What I really like about it is that you focus on the what are the things we actually can't do anything about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, but that's key. So, yeah. you know, I never tell people what they need to do. All we do with visual tools is we give them a tool and say, map out your current state <laughs> and then ask yourself, are you happy with that? If you map out your culture and you're happy with that culture, no need to change, right? If you have a world-class execution culture and, you know, everything is growing, you can ask yourself, do, should we, and, and that's the case for startups, should we really start thinking of innovation now that we're just scaling? Then, you know, you just visualize it and say, oh, we're not doing anything for new business models, new growth. And as long as that's a deliberate choice, it's okay. The problem when it comes to innovation is it's not a deliberate choice. People think they're innovating. People think they're investing in innovation, but they're not because they're doing innovation theater with no results. Yeah. So it's about being explicit and deliberate. How important is leadership in making a transition from one culture to another? It's number one. So without leadership taking the lead, <laughs> so good that it's in the same word, innovation can't happen. So what are the main tasks of the leadership team? Yeah. So look, first, I'd say the first task is just to signal to the company that innovation is important. How do you do that? It's not with PowerPoint decks. It's by showing that you're investing time in innovation. So I like to say that the leadership, if let's take the CEO, he or she needs to spend 40 to 60% of his or her time on innovation every week because if the company doesn't see that, they're going to say, well, it's not important, right? So first, it's the signaling. <laughs> the second one is um, creating, the, creating the environment, the context for innovation to thrive. So the leaders should never pick ideas. They should never tell people what to do. They need to create the culture, the metrics, the support system for ideas to come from the bottom up. So innovation is always bottom up, but it can't happen with top-down support. That's where leadership needs to kind of, you know, lead. Showing innovation is important. And second, creating the ecosystem with zero blockers to innovation and tons of enablers to innovation. That's the main task. Easy to do when you're committed. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great ending, uh, Alexander. Thank you very much for uh, being part of this uh, podcast. And uh, uh, your theories and your books are really, really great. And they make you think. And although it's um, you should never agree with everything in the book uh, that is so but uh, but, yeah. but it's it's really good so thank you very much and uh, good luck thank you 
Hej. Hvis du likte denne episoden, så abonner på den og gi den gjerne en femstjerners rating med dine tanker. Hvis du er interessert i temaene vi tar opp på denne podcasten, så anbefaler jeg dig å gå in på skifter.no. Og hvis du mener vi fortjener det, så kan du gärna støtte oss ved å abonnere på Skifter. Tack for at du hørte på, så ses vi neste uke.